Welcome to the 10th episode of our conversation series. We have rebranded slightly into religion in praxis conversations. Our guest is Professor Elizabeth Schachmann Hurt, and um, we'll be talking about her recent article called Freedom, Salvation, Redemption Theologies of Political Asylum. Um, uh, what are the theological and political conditions that sustain practices of political and religious asylum seeking, despite the persistent limitations and limits surrounding legal settlement involving religion? This is the question which Professor Schachmann asks. Given the instability of the category of religion, why do authorities persist in trying to establish whether a person or action, belief or practice is credibly subject to religious persecution? How might we understand religion anew in this context? We will also delve deeper into some of the more fundamental questions about the ongoing uh, migration crisis caused by the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. We will examine how will the Ukraine war affect the global politics of immigration, how is the United States responding to the ongoing migration crisis, and what are the religious dimensions of the migration crisis caused by this war. So, two quick advertisements. Um, first of all, we want to promote our Twitter account. Please uh, follow us on Religion in Praxis at Twitter and also follow our blog um, in which we create a lot of content related to religion and politics, interaction of secular state and different groups and social movements. The website is called religioninpraxis.com. Thank you very much for following, and I hope you will enjoy this episode. We have immense honor of uh, hosting Elizabeth Chuckman Hurd, who is a professor of political science and religious studies and holds the crown chair in the Middle Eastern studies in Northwestern University. Uh, Hurt was educated. Hurt was educated at West Wesleyan University, Yale University, and John Hopkins University, and she taught extensively at Northwestern since 2002. She studies religion in the U.S., foreign and immigration policy, the global politics of secularism, and religious freedom, religion and the American border, and relationships between the U.S., Europe, Turkey, and Iran. She co-edits, co-directs the Global uh, Religion and Politics Research Group at Northwestern and co-curates the Teaching, Law, and Religion Case Study Archive. Hurt enjoys speaking to public audience and we're extremely grateful for using this opportunity and she contributes to numerous discussions on global politics, law, and religion. And she's currently researching and writing on the question of religion and American border. Her most widely cited book, the classics in the field of political science and also sociology, the Politics of Secularism in International Relations by Princeton University is, is a substantial book on a number of levels. She argues that secularist division between religion and politics are not often fixed, as commonly assumed, but socially and historically constructed. 
examining the philosophical and historical legacy of the secularist tradition that shaped European and American approaches to uh, global politics. She shows why this matters for contemporary international relations, and in particular for two critical relationships, the United States and Iran, and the EU and Turkey. This book develops a new approach to religion and international relations that challenges realist, liberal, and constructivist assumptions that religion has been excluded from politics in the West. This, again, is another of her many contributions, but also an extremely important book is Beyond Religious Freedom, the New Global Politics of Religion, also published by Princeton University Press. And, 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 and the book actually looks at three critical channels of state-sponsored intervention. And the comparison, again, is between North American and European nations who sought to legally remake religion in other countries through an unprecedented array of international initiatives. Policymakers have rallied around the notions that fostering of religious freedom, interfaith dialogue, religious tolerance and protection for religious minorities. These were the key combating to combating persecution and discrimination. But, uh, but this book actually convincingly shows, argues that these initiatives create the very social tensions and divisions they are meant to overcome. And, uh, and if we zoom into these critical channels of state-sponsored intervention, and, and, uh, and Chakon Hurd actually focuses on international religious freedom advocacy, development assistance, and nation building and international law, the book shows how these initiatives make religious difference a matter of law, resulting in a divide that favors forms of religion authorized by those in power and excludes other ways of being and belonging. In exploring the dizzying power dynamics and blurred boundaries that characterize relationship between expert religion, governed religion, and lived religion, and this is again the sum of the topics which we mentioned in our previous podcast, whether with Nancy Ammerman or with Jose Casanova, the book charts the new territory in the field of religion and global politics. So this, these are just a few of the very, very important um, works, but several major questions from the very recent article, which I found extremely fascinating and relevant, Freedom, Salvation, Redemption, Theologies of Political Asylum. This is the paper which will be the foundation kind of, of our dialogue today. This gives an overarching frame to our conversation today. She asks, what are the theological and political conditions that sustain practices of political and religious asylum seeking despite the persistent limitations and limits surrounding legal settlement involving religion? Again, giving the instability of this category, which we sociologists are so obsessed with, right? Religion. Why do authorities persist in trying to establish whether a person or action or belief or practice is credibly subject to uh, religious persecution. So how might we understand or, or how might we theorize religion new way in this context? So today we will address some of these questions and other questions, especially relevant to the ongoing Russian military invasion of Ukraine and the migration caused by this armed conflict. Some of the questions will be, how will the Ukrainian uh, Ukraine war affect the global politics of immigration? How is the United States responding to the ongoing migration crisis? And what are the theoretical stories? What are the theoretical methodological questions which scholarly community or the wider audience can think of while making sense of ongoing migration situation? Elizabeth Chagman-Hurt, we are thrilled to have you today. The floor is yours. Thank you so much for this um, very nice introduction. It's good to be here with you today. Um, I am going to talk a little bit about uh, the paper that um, you're mentioning. And I think that it's important to note at the outset 
that this is definitely a work in progress. It's part of a book that I'm writing on religion and politics and the American border broadly understood, um, not only the U.S.-Mexico border understood as a line in the sand, but much um, a bigger set of processes involved in bordering the American bordering process. So the question that I'm asking here in this paper is where should we look if we want to understand religion and asylum seeking? And I found myself frustrated with the frameworks that were available in the literature that I was reading. So I found it unhelpful to focus on religion as conceptualized in these old colonial frameworks, um, which are inherited from the past, from the 19th century and these old classification schemes and really arguably outdated. So in most cases, religion and religious persecution mean whatever the immigration judge thinks they mean. It becomes a very subjective process. There's very little rule or pattern and so I wanted to think about this in a different frame, sort of like change the channel, shift the prism through which we're understanding what's happening. And I've come to think of the theological aspects of asylum seeking as located somewhere else, not so much in that moment of adjudication where the judge says, are they really prosecuted? Uh, are they really being religiously persecuted? Are they being at risk of religious persecution. And I've decided to kind of ask a different set of questions and instead approach um, what Courtney Bender has written about America as the place where religion goes to become free. The US then from this understanding is itself a religious idea and America is itself a religious project. So that's kind of my starting point for this paper. And I would say for the book as a whole, um, but let me just go into a little bit more of the details. So looking at these cases, and I'm looking at around 40 federal asylum cases over the span of a couple of decades in the early 2000s, um, I was shocked to see the extent to which um, both scholars and, uh, you know, advocates, so lawyers and migration advocacy folks who work in this asylum and refugee field um, are really deeply invested in the redemptive power of human rights and particularly the right to religious freedom. So my, my book Beyond Religious Freedom hasn't really, hasn't made it to most people yet clearly. So um, for most scholars, I think it's easier to privilege an understanding of religion as choice and as belief and as in the terms of freedom. Um, and it's easier to privilege religious freedom and to just kind of take those categories as given rather than to question their histories and their varied legal expressions. And this is definitely true both in the US in the field of asylum and refugee studies, but also internationally. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, okay. Um, so when we hear talk about religious persecution, um, or religious asylum, in general, it, people invoke a freedom to experience religion through choice, particularly individual choice. And this has been tracked um, historically by Lincoln Mullen, who wrote an excellent book about the emergence of religion as choice in 19th century US. And he says the prevalence of religion as choice instead of religion as inheritance is distinctively, though not uniquely, American. Americans came to think of religion as an identity that one could and must choose for oneself. 
So we now know well, there's been a lot of work on this, um, that there are limits of this construction of religion as choice and of construing religion as belief for the purposes of defining freedom, particularly religious freedom. And these limits also shape the politics of religious asylum. Judges and claimants themselves sense the limitations of these categories and they chafe against them. Declarations of religious choice, identity, and practice are stubbornly resistant to the task of ascertaining sincerity. And sincerity is really the key here that everyone's looking for in this legal process, is the conversion a sincere and authentic conversion? Or is it imposterhood? Is it a religious imposter who's pretending to have converted or pretending to be persecuted in order to receive um, asylum protection? So these fears of religious imposterhood, of politically expedient conversion, they haunt the asylum process from start to finish, every step of the way. And the power of the state and of international law to free the individual is always elusive. And as so many people have shown in law and studies, as a technocratic solution to political problems, law is just not enough. We need something more. And that something more is what interests me. There's kind of an invisible supplement to asylum proceedings and asylum law. And that is what I'm kind of exploring in this paper. So I found that if we focus on narrow understandings of religion in these cases, whether we frame them in terms of sincerity, in terms of the eye of the persecutor, which is one of the standards that's often used, in terms of the First Amendment, the US First Amendment, or some other metric, any of these um, understandings obscures a broader field of theological politics that interests me. And to explore that field, we need to look beyond the category of religion as it's being invoked by the judges, by the lawyers, by the claimants themselves in these proceedings, but also by scholars who are writing about them. And that's the tricky part because we think of scholarship as having a degree of objectivity, a degree of separation from the affairs that are being studied. When actually in this case, everyone is sunk pretty deep into a discourse of religion, religious freedom, religion as choice, sincerity, and uh, individual choice in particular. So if we press past that scholarly consensus um, and we start to think beyond it, um, we definitely begin to lose touch with the evidentiary assessment challenges because those evidentiary assessments are important to individual cases. And I think it's really important to point out, and I do this in the paper, that these categories matter to people. They matter to individuals who are making these claims. And these evidentiary assessments, as hard as they are, as impossible as they are, are still made. People are making these judgments. People are trying to squeeze their complex lives, and this relates directly to the refugee crisis ongoing now, they're trying lives into these groups, which accommodate them to some degree or not. And that's a really important thing to recognize. So even as I'm critical of these categories, and I'm saying they don't really work well, we need to think differently. I also recognize that they're being used on a daily basis by people who are desperate to improve their circumstances, to escape violence, to escape war, to escape all forms of persecution, religious and otherwise, and that we shouldn't ignore that. So even as I'm asking a different set of questions, and I hope to come back to this when we chat later, I'm not 
um, doing this at the expense of recognizing how much these categories do matter um, to people faced with these challenges in the present. So the questions that I came to in trying to really say is, well, what are the political theological questions that interest me and that allow us to step back, not only from asylum claimants and um, the adjudication process, but also the social scientific and even more so the legal scholarly um, literature in this area that is just so indebted to this particular understanding of religion and is just sort of dragging this colonial baggage behind it. And really, I think, getting in the way of understanding some what's going on. So the questions I came to then, um, and I'll end soon here, what are the theological and political conditions that sustain practice of political and religious asylum seeking despite these limits and limitations that surround legal adjudication involving religion? So just because religion isn't operating the way we think it might be doesn't mean it's not operating at all. And I think there's a much bigger story to be told about the theological basis of uh, asylum seeking and claiming. Secondly, given that religion um, is an instable, unstable category, why do authorities persist in trying to establish whether a person, an action, a belief, or a particular practice, or particular foods, or particular ways of dressing, or whatever, is credibly subject to religious persecution? Why do we keep trying to nail that down. Um, the horse has left the stable. We know how unstable this category is. Why do we keep going after that? And finally, how might we understand the religious and theological underpinnings of asylum seeking anew? How do we think this differently? How do we ask new questions about this topic? So what I found was the simultaneous power and poverty of a commitment to an understanding of religion as sincere belief in most of these proceedings. Secular democracies and the transnational asylum regime that we have created do not simply adjudicate the fate of pre-existing religious individuals. What they do is they privilege particular kinds of subjects, they create forms of subjectivity that they claim to objectively locate, and they actually generate the very indeterminacy surrounding religion that they claim to resolve. So a different approach, and I'll just give this two minutes and then I'll stop. I approached this question of religion and asylum seeking and claiming through the prism of theology understood very specifically as a mode of inquiry that takes the human as a question rather than a given, and that acknowledges the significance of human finitude rather than an assertion of human mastery. The asylum regime appears through this prism as integral to American political and religious exceptionalism because it reinforces a religious and political gap between Americans and others. It effectively creates the border. It affirms the possibility of freedom, redemption, and salvation through conversion, not to a particular religion, but to the American project itself. So faced with the limits of law and legal procedure, those who are involved in these proceedings on all sides, so we're talking about judges, claimants, advocates, attorneys, scholars, and even ordinary Americans who are just watching this from the outside, they all seek recourse in this promise of redemption through conversion to America as a religious project. This is the real religious aspect of asylum seeking. In the US context, the theological aspects of asylum seeking and claiming are based on a will to redemption, a will to be redeemed, through membership in the American people and the American project. That is what asylum seekers are understood to really be seeking. 
This constantly reaffirms the capacity of the American project to provide these goods, whether it does or not, while also affirming their scarcity or absence in other countries and contexts. So it's a mode of othering and of negotiating and affirming the self over and against the other. All right, so that's a very basic overview of where I'm going with this, with this particular chapter, with this particular article. And I know that today we're faced with this, you know, tremendous war as we were a few years ago in Syria. And uh, I know that there's probably interest in talking about that. So I'm happy to talk about some of the more specifics of U.S. immigration policy as well, although my focus is on some of the bigger questions under, and the assumptions that underlie the categories used in these uh, adjudicative processes. I'm also really interested in the day-to-day, -day, um, you know, how this plays out. I just got back from the border last week. I was with a group of students and a local advocacy organization called Border Links working in Southern Arizona. And it is, um, it is intense <laughs> and the scene is intense, not only the Ukrainians, but also the other folks who are coming in search of refuge. And so I do have some, a few things to say about, about what's going on policy-wise in more concrete terms. I'm happy to, to shift to that gear, also to talk about the Russian invasion and war in Ukraine and the extraordinary uh, human toll that that's taking, which is uh, really top of mind right now. So thank you. Thank you very much for this excellent and, and, and fascinating introduction. And of course, uh, you know, to open up the discussion more broadly, we, we, we're very interested to to hear your thoughts about the politics of immigration and the questions of the Russian Orthodox Church or Ukrainian Orthodox Church, Orthodox Church of Ukraine, and the international politics of the whole um, Ukraine war. And 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 my question will be: How will the um, the Ukraine war affect the global politics of immigration? And and you mentioned your your own uh, reflections. I'm wondering what's your take? How the U.S. will respond to the ongoing, and how does it respond to ongoing migration crisis? And what are the scenarios which which we shall expect? Great question. So I think. Um, do you want me to speak specifically about Ukraine and Ukrainians, or about the? immigration crisis more broadly or the, the crisis um, caused by, you know, the U.S. crackdown is what I should say, I because this broader, is a U.S. generated crisis. I think it'll be more interesting to give us the broader overview okay. of the experience of crisis and then kind of delve into the parallel yeah. maybe of, of, of the ongoing. Yeah. So there, you know, I was trying to think about where to begin. And I was trying to think about how, how, to, how to frame, uh, you know, a discussion about immigration law and policy in the U.S. It is really a lot like tax law and policy in that it is Byzantine, it is arcane, it is really difficult to grasp it because it's constantly changing. So the minute you think you have an understanding of a particular domain or a particular mechanism for entry or for, you know, stay of removal, that literally changes. The laws change and the policies change, and those are different things. The policies change very quickly. The laws change less quickly, but they are changing. In fact, let's see, we're Friday now, Wednesday, there was a major change. And I have to say that in trying to keep up and prepare for this, I was completely overwhelmed. And so I would say, just to point out a few things, first of all, first and foremost, the U.S., story is a story of a rapid decline in refugee admissions. So we have not been allowing people to come to the United States. 
we uh, refugee admissions, asylum and um, cases have really been pushed aside, particularly during COVID, but also as a result of the Trump administration. So what we're talking about here um, are primarily people who are, you know, trying to come to the U.S. outside of the refugee and asylum channels. People are trying to come to be reunited with families or to get jobs. So those are a lot of the cases that are being processed. And the backlogs for those cases can be 10, 15, 20 years, depending on which country one is coming from. So that is the first thing to take away is that the vast majority of our immigration bureaucracy is dedicated toward bringing in legal migrants who are coming here for non-emergency reasons. Setting that aside and much more germane to the question of the war and of asylum seekers and refugees, we can't, we have seen a you know, steep decline in the number of refugee admissions in the U.S. So, um, you know, I could give some numbers. I don't know how many, I mean, you want to hear, but basically we have seen um, not, not even so many people coming in, but expulsions. So uh, under Title 42, which is the pandemic law that allows the government to forego processing legal asylum applications. So meaning you come to the border, you want to come in and you want to make an asylum claim and they turn you back and say no, under Title 42, we see this legal exceptionalism kind of at its biggest. Um, and we see a system where we have now 1.7 million would-be asylum seekers and would-be refugees who have been expelled under Title 42 since the beginning of the pandemic. That's a lot of people. And you remember there were some really visible cases in the news that 10,000 Haitians who were expelled created a big uproar. There was, you know, horrible racialized violence against them in the borderlands as they were trying to cross. Um, but what I want to emphasize here is 70% of the expulsions under Title 42 were under President Biden. So what we are looking at here is a bipartisan consensus around uh, a border exceptionalism, around border enforcement, around a border security industrial complex that is extraordinarily powerful and that crosses the political spectrum. And it's very easy to say, oh, it's Donald Trump. You know, he's a nut job, he's a crackpot and all that's true. But nonetheless, this consensus is real and it's, it's definitely outliving him and it existed before Donald Trump as well. So what we have then is, a, is a, an exceptionalist system. In other words, the rules are constantly changing. The rules are being suspended. The rules are being altered. We also have a clientelistic, personalistic, and patronage-based system. So in other words, if you come to the border, if you want to be let in, and this has been happening with many Ukrainians lately at the San Ysidro port of entry in Southern California, if you want to come in, you need to have a sponsor. That is someone in the United States who's willing to vouch for you, who's willing to say, I will take this person in, I will uh, be accountable for them, I know who they are, and I will support them and indeed make sure that they have um, housing and whatever else they need in the short term as they approach um, the process of applying for asylum. So um, that is obviously something that people who have family members would be able to avail themselves of more easily than those who don't. So we do see family ties, patronage, clientelistic and personalistic 
um, kinds of dynamics in immigration and asylum domain in the US. Now, um, in terms of the other major mechanisms, um, the federal government announced earlier this month that it was going to extend temporary protected status to Ukrainians. And what this does is it allows the roughly 30,000 Ukrainians who were in the United States as of March 1st to remain legally in the country for up to 18 months. Um, and that is kind of like handing out crumbs to birds. Like it lasts for a few minutes, but it doesn't really fill them up. And the next day they're hungry again. So TPS status is both a blessing and a curse. And my graduate student, Natalia Giusto, wrote a great piece about this in the Chicago Tribune last week. Um, and actually she shows how the history of TPS was an effort to actually limit American responsibility toward unprotected populations. Um, and it was just created in 1990 in response to violence in El Salvador. But as she explains, TPS, like other examples in US legal history, privileges deserving individuals as part of an alleged attempt to go beyond race and discrimination in immigration policies. But what it actually does is gives them a little bit while withholding you know, the rights to really stay in the US. So TPS is okay for now, but it also is gonna place all kinds of limitations on those Ukrainians who want to come after March 1st, which is many of them, right? Um, the other big change that's happened in the last couple of weeks, or even actually this week, is that they are trying to create a legal fast track um, about two to three months from now that would allow actually um, DHS officials themselves to make asylum determinations um, for uh, migrants who are seeking political asylum or, you know, based uh, that they're claiming to be persecuted based on race, nationality, politics, religion, or membership in a social group. Um, but what's happening is there's such a big backlog, as I was mentioning earlier, that asylum applicants are waiting years and years before being processed. So they're trying to address that and they're authorizing DHS officers to approve or deny requests for uh, refuge in one initial interview, rather than passing them on to the asylum or immigration courts. Um, those courts right now, to give you a sense of the backlog, they have 1.7 million cases in backlog. Um, and so we have got basically a system that is just stopped up and they're trying to find ways to speed it up. Um, the problem is when, what do you do? What does the government do with um, asylum seekers and refugees when they're waiting for the decision. And right now they're being held in these facilities in detention, which is uh, horrific um, on many, many levels. And I can give examples if you want them. Uh, and so the idea was to try to speed up the process, to try to make this process move more quickly. Um, where would they be hosted in the meantime while their claims are being processed, even these shorter claims? Nobody knows. The government is claiming this week that they want to create campus-like facilities. Those are the words they're using. So I guess sort of imagine a university. But as we all know, right now, people are being held in tents, and it is not um, a campus in any sense of the term. Um, finally, I would say that remarkably, the U.S. Um, for so many years was known as a country of immigrants. That was the myth. And we did, for many decades, resettle more refugees than any other country, um, and oftentimes in many years than every other country combined. So we have let in a lot of refugees. Um, so since 1975, 
we've accepted about 3.5 million refugees in the United States, but only a few thousand over the past five years. So the thing to notice here is this remarkable pitched drop off. Um, so concretely, we've admitted since 2016, fewer than 23,000 Syrians, which is just astonishing because as I'm sure you know, Germany, for example, took in, I think between 800,000 and a million or 800,000 and a million Syrians who were seeking asylum. Um, in 2017, Barack Obama had set the ceiling for refugees at 110,000 per year. Trump went down to 15,000. Biden went back up to 62.5 for the 2021 fiscal year. But even though the cap was at 62.5, Biden only let in 11,000 refugees. Why? The system has been damaged by the Trump administration. First of all, they came in and Trump was elected to destroy the government, in particular to destroy opportunities for asylum seeking and for refugees and for immigrants. And he did just that. Um, he refused to appoint people. He stopped up the system. There's enormous effort to regain its footing, but it's a big shift to turn and things are slow. Number two is COVID. And COVID just makes, you know, the border was closed. Um, and so those two factors have made um, our numbers just dive. You know, 11,000 in fiscal year 2021 is literally nothing. When you think about the size of this country, 350 million people, I mean, 11,000 is just absolutely like, you know, a grain of salt. It's nothing. Um, so looking ahead and thinking about Ukrainians, our cap for fiscal year 2022 is 125,000. But again, in the first five months of this fiscal year, which began in October, the American government works on fiscal years, only 6,500 refugees were admitted, 6,500 people. And this is in part um, related to Afghanistan because the refugee system here is overstretched. The resettlement agencies are overworked and they are providing services to about 75,000 Afghan refugees and they are not counted toward that cap. They are outside that cap because they are a special case. And I think we are probably gonna see Ukrainians also becoming a special case. Um, as I'm sure you saw this week, the US announced it would take in 100,000 Ukrainians. So that probably will work outside of the cap as well. So initially they had allocated 10,000 slots under the cap for people from Europe. But now um, with 100,000 Ukrainians coming, that's obviously gonna change enormously. So that's a quick introduction to some of the dynamics. Um, I'm happy to discuss any um, on the other aspects of this process. Thank you very much. And, and I have a quick <clears throat> question. I think you mentioned very interesting in the drop of the asylum seeking and, and the, the dynamics. I wonder how do you explain the drop in the in the larger time frame from the 70s? I understand the Trump's, you know, from the Trump's administration to today, but it, was it the public demand or populism or Islam? Or what are the religious underpinnings or dimensions of this asylum seeking? Reduc reduction of numbers, uh, which U.S. Um, admitted to. It was the religion part of the story? Uh, was Islam part of the story? Or, or, or how do you explain in the proximity of the last 40 years or so? Yeah, actually, you know, that's really interesting. It, it's very hard to make generalizations about these numbers, in part because they're crisis-driven. And so you'll see these... Um, for example, the Afghan refugees that I mentioned, as well as the more recent Ukrainian bloc. So here we have 
you know, 100,000 Afghans, 100,000 Ukrainians who are coming in outside of the numbers that are given as the official caps and the official rate of admissions. So the, you know, it's very hard to know, you know, officially people who are admitted as refugees, yes, that has been going down. Um, now, why that's the case, I know that there were many, many refugees um, who were brought to the United States after the Vietnam War. Um, I grew up in school with many um, Laotian Hmong people who were brought to the U.S. as part of a deal by the government to say, you support us in the war and we will basically offer your family a safe harbor after the war. So the spike in those in those years in the you know late 60s, early to mid 70s um, may have then come down and attributed for part of this. I can't say that it's quote religion based or religion related because I think all conflicts and all reasons for movement end up in some way involving questions of religion and religious difference and religious faith and affiliation. So um, what I would say is look at this specific history, the US history with various countries, and then look at the specific policies that are created over different times. Um, and you know, the Afghan and the Ukrainian crisis right now is definitely you know, a good example of that. Thank you. Um, and we move to a few theoretical questions. Um, yeah. We can theorize, what are, the, what are the theoretical questions that the migration crisis, this very migration crisis brings, if, if any, and uh, what, what sort of nature of uh, conversation that the scholarly community or wider audience shall think of while making sense of an ongoing migration situation? Yeah, well, that's tough because it's always so hard when you're in the midst of a conflagration and um, a crisis situation and a war that we're seeing um, right now in Ukraine um, with this tremendous Russian aggression. It's very difficult to step back from the situation and see the big theoretical or conceptual questions that are going to need to be posed. But I do think that um, for people who study global politics, the questions that we're faced with when we study refugee and immigration law and policy um, and when we study religion in this context is uh, come back to the question of sovereignty. And what is, you know, how, how do we think about sovereignty as both a political and a theological construct? How do we think about the history of sovereignty? How do we think about the ways in which um, sovereign authorities use the law in order to regulate the border, in order to manage migration? And that brings you, you know, when you take sovereignty as the foundation, it brings you right into some of these really important categories, like the category of the refugee, which was obviously created, you know, after really actually extremely recently, although the category began after World War II, it was not an, an, in U.S. law until the passage of the Immigration and Naturalization Act in 1980. And that's in my lifetime, maybe not in yours, but that's pretty recent. And so that is, of course, the definition that defines a refugee as any person who's outside of any country of such person's nationality who's unable or unwilling to return to that country because of persecution or a well-founded fear of persecution on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion. So what's interesting here is like the First Amendment to the US Constitution, the INA, the Immigration and Naturalization Act, uses the term religion without providing any definition whatsoever, whether statutory or regulatory. 
So you need uh, an official entity such as the government or the UN Refugee Agency to, to deem and to determine whether a person is actually uh, a legitimate refugee, whether they meet that definition of well-founded fear that I just explained. Um, and, you know, I think that it's interesting to think about religion in this sense because it's sort of this uh, empty signifier and it really is very open. And I think the way it gets discussed in most of these proceedings um, kind of skirts some of the bigger issues underlying the theological politics that are at stake here, which do involve sovereignty and do involve this understanding of America as um, a project of redemption and as this, pro this um, you know, way of being in the world that allows religion to be free. So it kind of foregrounds this American project as a way of shaping and forming and liberating and emancipating religion and bringing freedom to people through religion, but also through kind of the air that you breathe when you're here. And this kind of mythos and this kind of mythology of American exceptionalism to me is just as important and just as influential as is the kind of, you know, legal and, you know, the statutory and constitutional questions and the legal nitpicking that goes on in these cases. So I'm interested in that bigger, in that bigger atmosphere and the kind of sense of what is the air you're breathing. Um, the other issue I think is, um, you know, the politics of asylum, uh, even if you're able to get into the U.S., which no one is right now, or very few are because of Title 42, um, even if you can make it through the door, you uh, have basically a year to apply for asylum. If you get it, which can take 15 years, 20 years, sometimes it can take a long time. Then you have five years to apply for your green card which could then lead to permanent residency. So really um, these special legal protections uh, are for few people in the big scheme of things. And I think it's easy because they're flashy cases that receive a lot of attention. It's easy to lose track of the floods of people who are looking for protection and who can never quite make it. They are stuck at the Guatemalan border, for example, um, you know, the border is really everywhere today. The U.S. border is everywhere. Todd Miller has written a book called Empire of Borders, which tells the story of the extension and the extraterritorial projection of the American border all over the world. Um, and so there are a lot of people who I think are affected by the border who are not physically at the border. And so I think that's another angle that scholars need to think about and look at and examining this set of issues. Many, many thanks. We have a lot of questions, so I have to pick a few from the audience. And please, uh, for those who have not submitted the question, you can use Q&A, and um, I, will, I will try to be as uh, efficient as possible and ask all the questions. But first question is, are, you, are, are Ukrainians the kind of migrants in the eyes of a right kind of migrants in the eyes of U.S. migration officers. Um, the, the, the listener says, I understand that formally being Muslim is fine, but in practice, does being Christian give an advantage? Oh. Um, you know, it's really hard to generalize because one thing that's interesting about these procedures is it sort of depends who you get when you get to the border. Who is the border agent? What mood are they in? What are the other people that have come through that day? How, what are their own personal hangups and predispositions and prejudices? So it's hard to talk about the system as a whole. There certainly is anti-Muslim prejudice in our system. I don't wanna suggest there isn't. 
Um, and so if you're talking sort of sociologically, you're right. Legally, there is not a preference there. Legally, we have quote, disestablishment, which is super complicated. We have an aspiration to disestablishment and what I usually call a soft establishment of Protestant Christianity in the United States. Um, and so, yes, there might be some kind of implicit advantage to presenting um, as a white person, as a white Protestant. Um, and I think that we're seeing that with the Ukrainian crisis, very sadly, Although I, of course, want to support the Ukrainian people, I don't want to see discrimination against other folks who are in equally dire straits. Um, so I would say to some extent, it will depend on the officer. But the bigger issue is probably not religion, but race. And I think that the dynamics of race are probably even more pronounced, and particularly racism against people who are non-white, um, who are non-English speaking, and um, particularly those who, you know, for example, I know there's a lot of discrimination against people who speak not Spanish and not English, but indigenous languages um, coming from, um, for example, parts of Guatemala where their native language um, will be one of the dialects derived from the Aztec languages and Spanish is not widely spoken, not to mention English. And those people are often shut out of the system because they don't have translators and they don't have the linguistic skills to navigate the asylum and refugee regime and to understand the requirements, not to mention the resources. So I would say racial, linguistic, and economic discrimination are at the top of the list of concerns, and religion would be behind that, but also wrapped up in it in complex ways. Thank you. Um, a few more questions. Um, so uh, basically, a quick summary is that are Russians part of the refugee conversation? Um, because the conversation is always about Ukrainians. So what about those Russians who are escaping Russia, as the question goes? And also, basically, can refugee admission cause reinforcement of nationalist sentiments within U.S. against Russians? Absolutely. And, I mean, I have to say that I think part of Putin's agenda and also part of the American far-right's agenda is precisely to reinforce those nationalist sentiments and to inflame a kind of hyper-militaristic, hyper-nationalist, um, you know, imperial understanding of the Russian state project, and which is supported by some of the far right. I don't want to suggest it's only Russians, which is supported by certain constituencies outside of Russia, including some of the far right in the United States itself. So yes, these restrictions can and do and will continue to inflame these nationalistic sentiments. Um, I think that the relationship between sovereignty, you know, sovereignty is a project of creating nationalism and, you know, nationalism as practice. You can talk about it as in a discursive level, but as in a practical level and an applied level, there's very, you know, border enforcement, border security, immigration policy is kind of an expression of nationalism. And that's what interests me about it. So, yes. Absolutely. Now, in terms of is there any discussion, the prior question, is there any discussion of Russians? That's interesting. I was talking to my spouse about that yesterday, and we were saying, you know, there are so many Russian dissidents who are working so hard under such difficult conditions. And I heard an interview with one of them from one of the dissenting um, independent radio or what had previously been an independent radio network, um, and he had to flee um, I believe he had fled to Tbilisi um, and he was discussing the difficulties that Russians are facing. Um, and there, I really hope 
that as we move forward in this crisis, that there will be more space in the American political conversation for Russian uh, refugees, dissidents, asylum seekers who have um, experienced, uh, uh, you know, the repression that Putin is inflicting so violently on on the Ukrainian people at the moment. Um, but this violence is also expressing itself in a different way within Russia, in in terms of uh, disinformation, in terms of repression of dissent closing of all media channels, all journalistic channels, all public, all, all spaces for public opinion. I mean, Masha Gessen did an incredible interview on Ezra Klein's podcast a couple of weeks ago where they said, you know, how can you talk about public opinion in Russia? There's no public and you're not allowed to have any opinion. You know, the things are just really closed down. And so I do hope, I sincerely hope that there will be some space in our conversation for thinking about Russian dissidents as well. Having said that, the most immediate and urgent, um, you know, need right now is to deal with the Ukrainians who have to flee um, this onslaught of violence. And so. Thanks very much. And tomorrow question, since we have uh, a few more minutes. Uh, so. The question is, can we talk a little bit more about Russia-Ukraine situation in relation to Russian Eastern Orthodox Church and how the sovereign authorities in the U.S. work uh, with the church in case of this invasion? <laughs> that is an interesting question. So one of the big differences between the American situation and the European situation when it comes to church-state relations, which is the focus of some of my work, is that the Europeans tend to have something called state relations with the church. That is something that makes sense to many Europeans. In the American context, that doesn't make sense. It's almost like a foreign language. We're like, wait, what church? Which church? Whose church? What, what are you talking about? The state? Where does the state fit in with the church? And we feel very confused and disoriented because we have a very different system here. That's not to say that our system is secular in any sort of you know, absence of religion sense. It's not, it's complexly intertwined and informed by all sorts of traditions and all sorts of ways of understanding ourselves and, and others based on religious histories and authorities and institutions. So that's not to suggest there isn't any religion in the public sphere here. It's everywhere here. It's everywhere, everywhere. Having said that, we don't have the same state bureaucratic apparatus we don't have a state directorate of religious affairs or a state office that has as its job to relate to the religious authorities. So what you have is a kind of um, hodgepodge of offices in the State Department that have been created to deal with religion and religious leaders. And I talk about them in my book, Beyond Religious Freedom, um, as kind of creating these very strange and distorted religious dynamics. Um, and we don't have an official office that is going to be a liaison with the Ukrainian church or with the Moscow Patriarchate. We do not have such an office. What we do have is uh, diplomats who are desk officers who are dealing with a particular country or a particular region. And those desk officers at the State Department work closely with their counterparts in the embassies overseas who are professional diplomats. And those diplomats then would have relationships with various constituencies, including but not limited to the churches. So that gives you a sense of the kind of, on the one hand, you know, confused and schizophrenic, but also um, 
aspirationally disestablished American approach to religious governance internationally, which is a really good question and really difficult. In terms of what specifically is going on right now with uh, the U.S. government and the church, my guess is that there are, you know, some discussions with some of the leaders about how we can, you know, best support those who are dissenting from the Moscow Patriarchate and who are supporting the, you know, the Ukrainian church and supporting those who are basically in opposition to Putin. But this would be part of a broader diplomatic initiative to isolate Putin and his supporters, which include, but obviously, again, not limited to Kirill and the leaders of the Moscow Patriarchate. So it's a complicated situation. I also have to say that we're sitting here with an expert <laughs> on these issues who has written an entire published last year by who could talk to us about some of these dynamics. So I want to turn the table and just offer you a quick opportunity, Dr. Metravelli, to just, in, you know, enrich the conversation a little bit with what you know about what's going on. Thanks very much. Um, and, and a quick quick response will be, I guess, that there is an interesting dynamics, which we depend, of course, on the outcome of, of, of war. An interesting dynamics is that there are a lot of churches which of the Moscow Patriarchate in, in Western Europe and um, also in in Ukraine, which are distancing or gradually distancing from Patriarch mm -hmm. Kirill. They're stopping commemorating Patriarch mm -hmm. Kirill. One might wonder, okay, so why is it a big deal, stopping commemoration? But it actually is a big deal because some of the most conservative churches, such as Pochayev Lavra in the Western Ukraine, which is the backbone of the so-called Russian world idea or ideology or a project, you name it, even this monastery actually stopped commemorating Kirill and their bishops, which were really conservative, and they distanced from him because of this obviously um, uh, highly morally contested position of, of the Russian Orthodox Church and the grave, uh, grave silence over uh, a, a proximity of time and then a very controversial preaching and, and a decree and also the... Um, um, the, the the argument by uh, uh, advocated by the patriarch Kirill, who actually linked ongoing war with with gay pride and resistance to the gay pride, and so this this of course caused an uproar. And and but but yet again, the main question, if of course, is why the interconfessional or interdenominational changes from the Moscow Patriarchate to the newly created Ukrainian Orthodox Church are only five percent. My understanding is that because Ukrainians don't consider religion as a key feature of their identity, and that's part of the story. Um, of course, and I, I work on the second book on lived religion in Ukraine, in which I delve deeper into the meaning and kind of the practice of lived religion in Ukraine. And Kathy Warner wrote an excellent book about that. So there, there is some interesting ways in which we can look at lived religion as an answer to, to, this, to this question. Um, and there is another question um, about the... Um, the different categories which are used in the discussion. So the question is, have you seen the idea of immigration, immigrants changing, gaining some kind of negative connotation over the decades? And could that also be reason for immigration becoming more and more complicated, especially to enter the United States? So I'm not sure I understand. You mean public, does the questioner mean public opinion about immigrants more broadly? As I, I, having would say, I would probably say, fallen? yeah. Yeah, I would say probably about the categories. I think that probably initially the idea. Yeah. It's probably the... Yeah, I would say, yeah. Yeah, so what's happened is immigrants have been politicized to a degree that was unprecedented, I think, in the past. And part of that is the result or a, a feature of the new technology 
and the new technological landscape that we experience politics and religion and immigration in right now. So um, I think that we've seen the migrants and immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers, which are very different kind of situations all collapsed into this sort of big, bad, mean wolf or monster that is understood to be out to get the American people or take their jobs or um, threaten their way of life or take away their liberty in some of these, you know, very extreme um, discourses or ways of understanding this issue. And so we've seen the, particularly the right, um, but also selectively parts of the left and progressives as well play into a discourse that is, um, you know, a kind of America first discourse. And that really is a big factor, I think, in some of the uh, fear that's been created around the figure of the immigrant and some of the support for these really draconian policies and very dramatic um, forms of technological surveillance, forms of even military surveillance. To give you just one example, we are seeing, I teach a class on the American border, and one of my students picked out an article to discuss that was showing the use of these new robot dogs on the border, which are just like these terrifying, like from some sort of science fiction movie or TV show, these terrifying like robot dogs that eventually could have the potential to even um, fire weapons. And so they're going to go and patrol the borderlands and you just get this like extreme dystopia, right? Where things have just like gone over the edge in craziness. And I think that that is in part a result of these discourses of fear and othering and kind of American, a sense of America under siege. And so, yeah, I agree with the questioner, absolutely. And watch out for those dogs. Yeah, I, I think uh, we can stop here. And uh, thank you so much for your excellent uh, presentation and conversation. We, of course, touched a number of themes which are very relevant to the ongoing uh, war, as well as global politics of migration, which are very relevant European topics. So um, I'm, I'm very thankful for the for the for the colleagues and audience and uh, who are here. So uh, have a lovely day, everybody. Thank you.